kitties, books and movies. Yes, we love these. Listen to this podcast, please. Today we are talking about um, a book that's been in the news a lot lately, actually. It's um, Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. He actually has two books on the bestseller list right now. This book and his more recent book, How to Be Anti-Racist, are both um, on the bestseller list again. Um, well, well, this one's on the bestseller list again. I don't know. How to Be Anti-Racist is also again, because I get the reports a day early. And by no, the time I- this comes out, it's fine. But <laughs> okay. Well, I just meant like I don't know if it was like off and came back because I don't know how long it's been out. But oh, um, well, it is at number one also. But which is they're both on the list. Yeah, they're on there. Which says a lot about the moment that we're in. Yeah. So it seemed important to us to maybe set aside other things that we were planning on talking about this week um, and talk about what the world is talking about. Um, and that is, in part, this book and the concepts in this book. Oh, it's a lot. Um, we're going to do the best we can. Disclaimer, as always, we're still white women. And, you know, we are, as white women, um, we know that it's our job to listen, but it's also our job to not just post on social media, but actually go out and do things when we can. And um, so one, what I wanted to do at the start of this episode in lieu of an intro question, or I guess this is an intro question, is um, so one of the ways that white people can help right now is by donating to charities that help black people, like just giving money to black organizations. Um, so my intro question today is what charity do you want to plug here that people can donate to if they want to help? I mean, black people, you can donate to these charities, too. <laughs> but all the white people listening should pick one of these and donate. <laughs> okay? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're asking. Please. So, I know Mary, I'm just going to go ahead and also say Mary is not here this week because she is getting married. Yay. Yay. To Todd. Friend of the pod, Todd. To Todd. Yes. She so, is reading the book. She and... is reading the book, and she's going to have thoughts for us. And she did give us a charity that she wants to plug, and that is The Okra Project. That's at theokraproject.com, and they provide support for trans black people. So you should check that out. Um, you guys, tell me about your charities. Um, I can go next. Mine is in the same vein as The Okra Project. Um, okay. It's The Audrey Lord Project. Um, which is a lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, trans, and gender nonconforming people of color center for community organizing, focusing on the New York City area. Through mobilization, education, and capacity building, we work for community wellness and progressive social and economic justice. Committed to struggling across differences, we seek to responsibly reflect, represent, and serve our various communities. Um, so that uh, you can donate to them. Their website is alp.org. Pretty easy. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think it's important, especially, you know, right now is Pride. Pride continues. Uh, and, you know, it's important to highlight 
um, black people, especially during Pride, because so much of Pride, like, was born out of queer black people and, um, you know, their fight for this movement. So, like, if you are, a, you know, a white person who um, enjoys the the beauty of June as Pride Month and being able to, like, embrace and love that part of yourself, like, you would not be in that position right now if it weren't for the work of so many um, really amazing Black uh, queer people that came before. So Awesome. Susan? Yeah, so um, I'm going straight after police brutality and efforts to defund the police with Campaign Zero. Um, their mission is to build a world where police don't kill people. What a mm. radical idea. <laughs> um, but they they do this by proposing real policy solutions that include community oversight, limiting use of force, implementing better training, demilitarizing the police, etc. So it is a policy-based campaign to end police brutality and you can donate there by going to joincampaignzero.org awesome and this is emily um as you all know if you've been listening to our podcast mental health is important to us just as a brand it's also important to me (laughs) as a person um so the um charity i want to ask you guys to donate to is the loveland foundation so um, according, this is all from their website. According to the American Psychiatric Association, two in three black people in need of mental health care never receive it. Um, systemic issues, including a lack of diverse practitioners and high costs for care, can often make it difficult for those who need help to receive it. So the Loveland Foundation supports black women looking for therapy, as well as providing financial assistance through donations. And, and its goal for 2020 is to, rev- to provide 1,000 black women and girls with four to eight covered therapy sessions. Um, and they do work beyond this as well to make sure that these people continue to get coverage and are able to find help beyond that. But this is just like one specific goal they have for this year. Um, and according to their site, if six people donate $20, it would cover one therapy session. So you can donate $20. You got it. Um, and you can check them out at the lovelandfoundation.org. We will put the links to all of these um, organizations in the show notes. So yeah, you should check that out. Um, yeah. Anything else we want to say about that before we talk about this book? Um, you know, just that like, no matter how much, uh, it seems like, you know, the media isn't covering protests or your, you know, social media feeds are going back to normal, like, or, you know, normal for like us white people, if we follow a bunch of other white people, um, I encourage you to seek out, uh, more, people of color to follow on social media. But also, you know, it's okay that people want to, you know, post memes and make jokes and stuff. But, like, that doesn't, you know, it shouldn't take away from the fact that this is a problem that is still happening and it's not over. It's not over even a little bit. And, like, Mm -hmm. we need to be paying attention, like, forever. So, um, and that's one of the really big messages of this book as well. And, um, if you read this book, if you read this book along with us, or if you're planning on reading it, um, 
I think one of the main things that Kendi is trying to say is that, you know, racism has been with us for a really long time. It's deep seated. It's not by accident. And because of these things, that makes it um, really difficult to just like overcome, you know? So all of those people who are thinking like, when's it going to be over? Um, That's not how this works. Um, So, yeah. Um, So we're going to talk about that book now. Um, just before we get into it, spoiler warning, warning, um, we are going to spoil the book, but this is American history. So, um, (laughs) uh, the information is out there. This isn't, I mean, a lot of this is news. Unfortunately, we don't get taught a lot of this in schools, but we should be taught this, you know, we should know all this stuff already. Um, but you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that we didn't know and that sucks. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, we're trying to be better. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so my throat is a little scritchy, scratchy, but I'm going to do my best to read this description without coughing. Okay, so stamped from the beginning. That's what we're talking about. Um, this is the Goodreads description. Americans like to insist that they are living in a post-Rachel, Rachel, post-Rachel. <laughs> we are post-Rachel from Friends. We are. We don't, <laughs> we don't get that haircut anymore. Um, but a post-Rachel also, colorblind society. In fact, racist thought is alive and well. It has simply become more sophisticated and more insidious. And as award-winning historian Ibrahim X. Kendi argues and stand from the beginning, racist ideas in America have a long and lingering history, one in which nearly every great American thinker is complicit. In this deeply researched and fast-moving narrative, Kendi chronicles the entire story of anti-Black racist ideas and their staggering power over the course of American history. Stand from the beginning uses the lives of five major American intellectuals to offer a window into the contentious debates between assimilationists and segregationists and between racists and anti-racists. From Puritan minister Cotton Mather to Thomas Jefferson, from fiery abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison to brilliant scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, to legendary anti-prison activist Angela Davis, Kendi shows how and why some of our leading pro-slavery and pro-civil rights thinkers have challenged or helped cement racist ideas in America. As Kendi provocatively illustrates, racist thinking did not arise from ignorance or hatred. Racist ideas were created and popularized in an effort to defend deeply entrenched discriminatory policies, to rationalize the nation's racial inequities in everything from wealth to health. While racist ideas are easily produced and easily consumed, they can also be discredited. In shedding much-needed light on the murky history of racist ideas, Stamp from the Beginning offers tools to expose them and, in the process, reason to hope. So there's a lot here, and there's a lot that we can get to, and I definitely want to leave it open for us to talk about a lot of things. My first discussion point was just, whew. Because <laughs> we all recently, we just finished reading this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing is that we decided pretty late in the game that we were going to read this book. And usually when we read a book, yeah. we have like, like advance notice, but we had two weeks to read this. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a pretty dense book, which, because it's a history book. Um, and so I finished, personally, I finished reading this about five minutes before we started recording. So that's a record for me. Yeah, that's normally what I do. <laughs> yeah. That's what I call Susan style. I do that most of the time, even with advance notice. 
Yeah. I've been listening to it while running, which is a weird experience because, you know, there's no beat <laughs> to help you keep your pace. It's just like, oh, oh God. I usually listen to like podcasts and wow. books when I'm running, so that wouldn't bother me. And maybe the subject matter a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So we just like, we're doing a lot of, um, thinking today probably. Um, and hopefully we're going to do our best to cover this, but again, you know, we're, um, we're learning, we're trying to be better. We might make mistakes. Um, and please feel free to yell at us if we say something really dumb, but we're going to try not to. But yeah, on that note, uh, I made a general outline of the book just for us to use and keep track of everything. I'm not going to like go through the outline for readers. Like we're not here to summarize the whole book for you. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book, just sort of as a way to just open up the floor to talking about different things that happen in the book. So um, at the beginning in the intro, uh, Kendi tells us that the book is going to be divided into five sections, and these are going to be our tour guides. Um, and those sections are Cotton Mather, Thomas Jefferson, William Lloyd Garrison, W.E. Du Bois and Angela Davis. How did you guys feel about this as an organizational strategy? Um, and why did, why do you think Kendi picked these specific tour guides? Well, I will say that this was actually, this is like the ideal organization strategy for me because like a, something that I struggle with when I read history is that a lot of the time I feel like I'm not like connecting to any like, because for me, when I read, a character is really important um, as far as, like, getting me invested in following what the plot is, which, like, I know is, like, stupid for history. Like, I shouldn't be thinking about it that way. But still, for me, like, as a person who doesn't read a lot of nonfiction in general, um, it's hard when it's just, like, here's a list of wars that are happening or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so for me to have this sort of, like, at the beginning of each section, like, this kind of introduction of a specific person that we're going to be following and how like when they're born what's going on in the world and then sort of following them through it felt like a much more accessible way for me to absorb the information mm -hmm. um so for me like it, it really worked so tour guides feels like an apt description of what they were doing i think so i think so as for as for why um they were chosen, I think. I mean, I was so unfamiliar with, like, Cotton Mather. Like, I couldn't tell you, like, <laughs> like why specifically uh, him. I think that, like, Thomas Jefferson is a pretty, um, like, yeah. colossal yeah. figure uh, in history and also a person who is, like, so incredibly conflicting in his ideology and also just fucking awful. <laughs> so, uh, I, I thought, I mean, I think that that made sense. And, um, yeah, I mean, I loved reading about Angela Davis who like, yeah, I, you know, knew a little bit about, but not as much as I wish I had, because like, honestly, what we learned about the black Panthers in my yes. high school history class was like the black Panthers were bad. Yep. Okay. On yep. to the next chapter. Like, we were taught that, and we were taught Malcolm X, bad. Black Panthers, bad. Like, we don't learn anything about them other than right. violent, bad, 
not a good example of how to do things. Uh, don't even bother learning about it because right. that is how history for, you know, public school in Florida, I guess, <laughs> and much of our country, I assume, is written. And for a long time, I had no idea, like, I didn't know shit about Malcolm X because I just, like, was made to think that he was unimportant. Well, I might be, I, I mean, like, I'm not an X-Men expert, but um, <laughs> not at all. So, like, I wish Mary were here, but I mean, weren't um, Professor X and Magneto supposed to be sort of like stand-ins for Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in the original comic? That's so interesting. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. Um, Now that you said it, I'm like, huh. <laughs> I did, I I did that not know that, but well, I'm I just gonna <laughs> run with it and be like, that's absolutely true. Um, no, I, but I'm not. Yeah, Mary, I'm not making this email. up. Like I, I, do, I do think that's right, but I, um, I, I'm just saying that to point out, and this is something that Kenny talks about a lot throughout the book too, is like how media sort of subtly and not so subtly in some instances. Um, gives us a narrative about how we're supposed to feel about race and civil rights. Um, and this would be an example of that. And I think this is something that we're sort of subtly and not so subtly taught as children is like Martin Luther King was doing it right. And Malcolm X was doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality, Even though, <laughs> like by the, yeah. by the end of, of Malcolm X's life, um, him and, and Martin Luther King had sort of like, like, kind of strayed from their original really yeah. intense beliefs to, like, get closer to each other, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, like, so... It's such a thing to, like, pit people against each other who yes. are really fighting for the same cause. Mm-hmm. So... I agree. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, I feel like the sections work for me. I want to say too, that I, um, was also really curious about the, the YA version of this book, which is called stamped. Um, stamped was co-written by Jason Reynolds. I'm not quite sure how they did it after reading it. What I feel like happened is, and please do not take this as this is what happened. This is just me imagining how it worked (laughs) based on like how it read. I feel like (laughs) Kendi gave Jason Reynolds this book and said, hey, can you rewrite this for kids? And then Jason Reynolds read this book and then explained it to kids is how it felt. (laughs) Um, And that's not to like, that's not a sit in a negative way. It's just uh, that that book was, I think, like 230 pages. And this one is. Almost 20 hours long on audio. This one's 511 pages. I love that we picked a book that is over our normal page limit for four (laughs) weeks of reading. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't Um, expect that before, but it's fine. I'm glad I read it. Yeah, no, when we chose it, we didn't look at that. Although I think either way, it's important that we read it, whatever the time frame was. Was it harder? Yeah. But but (laughs) my point about the YA book is that it's not organized in the same way. Um, it's not organized by person, which, um, I wonder why. Yeah. I guess because the sections would be really short, but also it's told in the same order as this. 
Right. I mean, the order is history, basically. It's yeah. Not like it's so I don't know why. I don't know. Um, but the um, the language is very different. Yeah. I, I showed you guys some sections of it. It's very conversational. Yeah, very YA. Very YA. Um, and I think, you know, having read it, I'm really glad. I'm glad I read it. And I think that it's really good that that book exists. Yeah, like um, I would. I don't know. I would have loved to read something like that when yeah, I was. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like you know? <laughs> this book is great, but it's not for no twelve year olds. Um, and that's yeah. really like you should be learning about this stuff when you're younger. I wish that I had known this when I was younger. You know. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of what blew my mind the most about just every section and every person is that even the ones I thought I knew a good deal about, like Thomas Jefferson, I was like, oh, no, I didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, not even close. The fact that I don't know or didn't know before this much to anything about Angela Davis is a crime. Like, especially, like, even currently, like, living in Birmingham, she's from Birmingham. She actually, she recently was given an award here at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute that they like live streamed, which was cool. But like, honestly, until recent years, I did not know anything about her. I had never heard of her. I was never, she was never talked about at any point in any history class I took. Um, And not to brag, but I took AP history classes. I feel like they didn't teach me advanced. Yeah, I was in. I was literally in AP American about history, this. and I did not learn anything about this. So that's cool. No. Um. Nor did I. Like I said, I didn't know any. I didn't know nearly what I thought I knew about. Um. About Jefferson, for example, and I. I don't know if this is a dumb thing to say or not. Hopefully, I'm not the only one. Had never heard of William Lloyd Garrison. No. No. Yeah. I had heard his name, but like that name was familiar to me, but I really didn't know much about his work. (laughs) So I'm just like, I'm upset with my school system, which I have been for other reasons in the past. Yeah. I mean, like, like, I already know that my knowledge of history and not even just U.S. history, but like just history in general, world history is just like despicable like the the amount that i do not know about the world is like so depressing to me especially considering like how much time i spent supposedly learning (laughs) you know like how much of my life i spent in school like quote unquote learning um Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of a reflection of of our entire education system that like so many people who if you know especially if you kind of stopped taking history classes after high school which i basically did like i took art history classes but uh because i took my ap history classes i didn't have to take history classes in college um and i was i was an art student so like my only history education was in high school and if you ask like anyone else who had that same experience like None of them are going to know any of this stuff unless they specifically went out of their way to learn it, you know? Right. Um, Which is why it's awesome that these that two of his books are are currently on the bestseller list because right now people are actually going out and saying, I'm going to look for mm-hmm. the information. Not everyone, yeah, as we know. 
I'm sure we've all encountered some people who are actively not looking. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can talk shit about those people. Yeah, because they aren't going to listen to this anyway. Like, if they were going to listen to this, no, as soon not. as they tune in and heard what we were talking about, they were like, nope. Never mind. I don't care. Um, I'm not using that accent to say they're all Southern, but I am saying it happens a lot here. Yeah. So, um, I was born in Louisiana. I can make fun of Southerners all I fucking want. Okay. Well, I live here now, so I feel like I can too. I've been here long enough to say <laughs> some shit if I want to. However, the school system I'm harping on is, as Justin calls it, north of the wall. <laughs> I, was in, I grew up in Indiana. We still didn't learn that shit. So, I mean, Florida anyway, doesn't count as the, the South fact either. That none of us <laughs> knew this stuff is proving the point yeah. of the of a lot of this. It's just like the entire system, including the education system, is built to just reinforce white supremacy, racist ideas. Yeah. yeah, and it did. I mean, we didn't think it did at the time, but it's a lot clearer now, looking yeah. back, how it did. Um. Yeah. And this book also introduced a lot of terms that were somewhat new to me. Um, I'd heard of some of these ideas before. Like, obviously, I've heard of assimilation and anti-racism, but curse theory, I'd never heard about. I'm, I'd heard about the biblical idea that black people were, like, cursed somehow, but I didn't know, like, the whole... I like theory behind it or whatever. Polygenesis was also something that I was like vaguely aware of, but not really like how deep it went. Both of those things. Um, uplift suasion had never heard before, but seems like a very important term, especially to this book. Yeah. I actually highlighted the the part in the book that explains it too. Yeah. I see you have that quote. Yeah. I just was like, we I need to grab one because I don't think if it's like, Hey, talk about it real quick that I would be, be able to talk about it real <laughs> quick. Yeah. Yes. Um, this is on the test, everyone. Please explain uplift suasion in five sentences or less or fewer. Um, w- one thing I want to say is that I thought it was so, like, it was almost funny reading about, like, the this huge debate that was going on for so long between curse theory and polygenesis, which are just two ideas that are completely founded off of absolutely nothing. Yes. And <laughs> people are just, like arguing about them well and the amount of acrobatics that scientists had to go through to make polygenesis work yeah because it was like wait black people and white people can have babies together but they're different yeah hmm and also if you if you move (laughs) to the north eventually you will become white (laughs) physically (laughs) but yeah like if anyone listening didn't read the book just to quickly explain, I guess. Um, so curse theory is this idea that like, I guess, so is ham, is it pronounced ham? First of all, <laughs> this is how little I know I about the so. Bible. Um, I really don't know anything about the Bible. So, either, so this is one of Noah's sons. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay. So apparently uh, he I guess, what did he do? Behave badly on the Ark or something? He had sex on the Ark because they weren't supposed to have sex on the Ark. He had sex on the Ark. (laughs) He behaved badly. And then all of his uh, children were cursed to be black because obviously being black uh, is a curse, according to white people. Yeah. 
So that's that one. Um, so there's a whole group mm-hmm. of people who believe and that. And also that. that also that plays into the whole over-sexualization of black people, which we will talk more about later. Yes. But um, yeah. And then polygenesis is this idea that, uh, th- like, the races are di- almost like different species based on where they were born. Like, ba- hmm. polygenesis is the idea that every uh, race is a different species. And then, but then there's monogenesis, monogenism, whatever, uh, that suggests that everyone comes from the same species, but the people who were arguing for that at the time were also arguing climate theory, which was that if you, you know, you're born in Africa or like all Africans look this way because of you know, the sun and where it's hot and whatever. And when you're born in a colder climate, you're whiter. But if you move it, like if you uh, transport yourself to a colder region, you can, and this like goes into assimilation that you can like become white. And then later, if you're Christian enough, you can become white. Yeah. Yeah. I said this to you guys before, but I'm going to say it out loud now. Can you think of a more racist sounding name? Than Cotton Mather. (laughs) No. Absolutely not. No. So Cotton Mather's whole deal was that he wanted to convert slaves to Christianity to save their souls. And this was sort of like an excuse for slavery. Or not an excuse, but a way to like spin it so that it sounded positive. Because actually white people were like saving slaves by um, taking care of them until they could uh, be saved. Right. And this sort of plays into the idea that this whole book posits about racism, which is that racism does not come out – racism doesn't exist because of hate and prejudice. Like, racism exists because it is basically created to serve the needs of people Mm -hmm. who are in power. So, like, the people in power wanted to have slaves – They had power over all of these black people. And then in order to justify why they were enslaving all of these people, they came up with racist ideas, which were then perpetuated, like, Mm -hmm. throughout the cycle of history as slavery continued. And then those ideas were already ingrained. And then, you know, different power systems came into play once slavery was over. There's there's always a new reason why slavery will – or, you know, racism will benefit, like – a small portion of people at the top. But then those people at the top will find yeah. ways to turn other people, such as poor whites, against black people, even though poor whites are much more on the level, like, socially and economically of poor black people than they are rich white people. But the goal of rich white people was to turn poor white people against black people. <laughs> so... Cause like, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing that's happening in our in our country right now. Is this idea that like this this president Donald Trump and like we don't usually talk about we don't get like super into politics as far as like what's going on in our administration. Um, but just to say, like Donald Trump pretends to be a voice for the people. Meanwhile, he is absurdly rich, and the people who support him are absurdly mm-hmm. rich. 
And they don't care about you. They don't care about poor white people. They don't care about poor black people. They don't care about middle class people. They don't care about anyone but themselves. And they will come up with a thousand different reasons why uh, you should believe that their strategy is going to be better for you. But it's not. <laughs> it's just not. It's a lie. Because they're they're talking about how, like oh, well, the taxes are going to come and you're going to get so taxed if we try to have universal health care. It's like, no, you're not <laughs> because you don't make a fuck ton of money. Like the only people who are going to yeah. actually... Like, do you not realize how much you're paying for health care right now? Like, like just think I'm about paying it. a lot. I mean... I'm paying a lot. Well, there's like, the people that are the most afraid of something like, like universal health care because it sounds like communism somehow right well it sounds like it's gonna not benefit me it's gonna benefit other people and it's like in the end it's gonna benefit everyone except for the few people who are gonna have to give up some of what they didn't ever earn <laughs> so there's like a, an incredible passage like at, in the epilogue of this book that i don't have to read right now but i would like to read later that's like all about how you know the best way to like <laughs> to like for, like to be anti-racist like there's a lot of people who are never going to like come around you can't like educate people who aren't willing to learn but what you can do is make people understand that like they by being anti-racist they will actually be benefiting themselves like most people most white people will benefit from anti-racism at the end of the day yeah yeah it's the same that most men would benefit from from adopting feminism. a yeah. feminist approach to right policy, right. It's life, etc. Because <laughs> there's always this idea of you know I'm giving something up in order to like let other people be equal, and it's like there's not a limit to equality. <laughs> like there's yeah. not you don't have to like give you don't have to become lower to make black people equal like you don't have to lose some huge like it's it's just like oh my god i can't okay <laughs> yeah um let's talk about uplift suasion yes because we said it was a big one i told you there was going to be an essay question <laughs> um susan do you want to do you want to read the quote that you put in here just as an intro yeah sure and let me say where this interview came from this is an interview with the author from uh, by a guy named Joe. I'm gonna say Macare. We'll link to it, but it's from Truth Out. But anyway, he we're just trying our best. Kind like of asked. Trying our best. He just asked Kendi to, hey, like redefine that. He says, "Uplifting is simply the theory or strategy that states that as black people uplift, uplift themselves, white people will think higher of black people." In other words, white people think lowly about black people because black people are lowly. Their behavior is lowly, and so as black people rise, as they become more upwardly mobile, and as they strive to be better people, white people will see them as better people. Yeah, um, and so this is a problem throughout this book. Um, and that continually. People... Yes, Um <laughs> And if the problem with that is not clear to you, let's break it down. <laughs> One of the major problems with that is that um, it puts the um, responsibility on black people 
to uh, solve racism or like prove that they're worthy of being equal, um, which is not how that should work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's it. Also, <laughs> it also assumes that the white way of doing things is the correct way of doing things. Right. Yeah. Um, I was going to. It say assumes that. that, like, you know, in Africa where they and like and also there are so many myths that were perpetuated about. Africa and African life just like throughout history um, to kind of like make white people afraid of like this myth of like the African brute or like savage, you know, and it just assumes that like just because a different culture has a different way of doing things, a different belief system um, isn't like a, you know, murderous capitalist society (laughs) <laughs> that like they are wrong in some way um mm. and then the other problem is that like this doesn't work because as certain black people in America would try to do this if they did succeed and if they did get to a point of success they were then seen as uh, the quote unquote extraordinary negro which is this idea of, you know, if a black person does manage to uplift themselves into white society and and make other white people see them as better, white people don't then think, oh, all black people are great. They think this one black person is special. Right. Um, and the first example of that we get in the book is Phyllis Wheatley, um, who was a poet. And they had this, like panel of white men like come and read her poetry to check and see if she was like as smart as people said she was because like you know white people had to like white men had to like affirm that like right yeah and then the most recent example of this idea is president barack obama who (laughs) that given in this book who people lots of people I mean, many people voted for him because he was cool and we liked him. But also, many people voted for him because they were like, well, see, this is how black people should be. This is the Mm -hmm. type of black man who will be able to show other black people how to behave. For those of you guys who are following Bachelor news, we can also use this in the Bachelor community as well because, um, you know, people have been fighting for a black Bachelor for a long time. Uh, we wanted Mike. That's not who we got. We got um, Matt. Matt James. Yeah. Is that his name? Okay. We got Matt James. Fine. We'll take it. Right. Um, but I think Rachel has been pretty outspoken as always because she's a fucking queen um, on a lot of podcasts and media outlets about how she feels about Matt James's announcement as Bachelor, and she said part of the problem is um, he's the safe choice um, because he's associated with two really popular white um, people from people. Yeah. Bachelor nation celebs. And also she said that, you know, when she was speaking out about Hannah saying the N word on um, Instagram, that people were coming at her and saying like, why can't you be more like Matt James? Right, because Matt James didn't say anything about it. Right, um, and she said that's a problem. And if I were Matt James, I would be 
upset that people were saying that I would be offended by that because I mean, and she didn't use those terms, but that's essentially what she's saying is that they're making him into this like exceptional Negro that is like, why can't black people act more like Matt James? And then if you act like Matt James, then you can be the bachelor. But, but it's the other thing too, where, you know, the bachelor has said for years, like, Oh, it's not that we're not trying to have a black bachelor. It's just like, we haven't found the right fit yet. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. That's the same There've as I want. I don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Like I want a woman to be president, but not this woman because yeah. blah, blah, blah. she was like, still running against no. Donald Trump. You guys, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like let's. <laughs> like, I'm not saying she's on. without her problems, but Jesus, yeah. Right. Um, um, no, but but yeah, I just you know I I just wanted to use this opportunity like now that I've learned something, I want to apply it to the world at large. So I found you know me and all my bachelor watching that was my example. I oh for sure here for it personally, as a fellow bachelor <laughs> fan and fellow advocate for a black bachelor and fellow Mike advocate because that's what I was trying yes. to get. And I wonder if it's we all wanted Mike. Mike has been um. Like a lot of people of color in Bachelor Nation has been outspoken recently, mm-hmm. just on, I mean, on social media and some of them on podcasts about this stuff. And that's uh, not where Matt James has been. So, yeah, no, I question if that's part of it, but we'll whatever. We'll, we'll see how it we'll goes. See. Um, you know, we're happy for Matt James and, you know, we're going to watch and recap that season. So you just oh, sit tight. We, will. we are here for it still. Um, yeah. probably we'll talk about Rachel as much as possible though, because we always do. Yeah. We love her. But this like double edged sword idea of that we're talking about with uplift suasion, which is that like it, even if you did achieve this as, as a black person, then you're looked at as an exception and not as your entire race is not actually uplifted. That like double edged sword idea comes up a lot not just with uplift suasion but like early in the book it was like well if slaves rebelled then it confirmed that they were like brutal Uh savages if they conformed to it and were peaceful about it then it showed that they were meant to be enslaved it's like no matter what the black person is doing it is simply confirming whatever idea white people have already put on them Yeah, yeah they literally cannot win yeah, right. and, also, and it's happening now too. I mean, like, this is, of course, it's happening now because it's all part of the same system. But like, yeah, if people are, I mean, it's the way that people responded to quote unquote rioting and looting and all of this stuff and like violent protests versus peaceful protests. It's like you didn't like it peaceful either. Like, yeah. Well, and also peaceful didn't do anything. Exactly. Like, nothing... and, and never in history has it done anything. Be- like, like when, like, I think Colin Kaepernick was the big example of this, right? Yeah. And that's been in, in the media is like Colin Kaepernick pro- protested peacefully for a long time and uh, he got fired. Yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> right. He so. lost his job and was uh, <laughs> basically like shit talked by everyone in sports and yeah yeah uh fuck that go him i'm I'm gonna cite (laughs) like another book i've been reading right now which i'm gonna mention later and i don't want to take too much attention away from the book we're talking about because the book i'm about to mention is by a white person but in white fragility she talks so much about how like there's never been a point in history where the the class or race or 
sex that wasn't in power has gotten anything that they've wanted by just being like, can we have it? Yeah. No. Please, like, I'll be nice about it. Like, there's no way to get it because you can't vote for it because, like, you didn't have the right to vote. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, black people could not vote for their own right to do things in what we think of as, like, now, I guess, like, the first civil rights movement. Um, And, like, spinning all of that as, like, totally peaceful is not a actual picture of what happened, but it's also not a thing that works. And so, like, mm-hmm. pushing that idea that the only way to do something is by, like, sitting back and being quiet and, like, being really nice and, like, asking the white people in power, like, is it okay if we, like, do, if we can have some more rights, please? That's racist in itself. Like, just pushing that narrative is fucking racist. And also, yeah. how did the white people get what they have? How did they get that? Did they sit quietly and... Colonization. Did they ask African people, like, would you mind if you (laughs) came with us and, like, didn't make any money and we tortured you and enslaved you? Or did they fucking take them violently? And did they ask Native Americans, like, is it cool if we park here for a while? Yeah. Can we spread disease to all of you and also force you to march across the country and kill, like, hundreds of your people? Thousands? I, uh, it's just, like, infuriating the amount of the, like, double standards that go on yeah. here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And have been going on since <laughs> the beginning. That's, like, the thing that, I mean, obviously this book is called Stamped from the Beginning, but what yeah. <laughs> what got to me a lot throughout it was just, like, it's always fucking been this way in America. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And, like... Yeah. That's why that's why even the phrase make America great again obviously has racial <laughs> racist connotations. Um, yeah. Because it especially because it was in response to a black president. Right. Uh y- yeah, and <laughs> among other reasons. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's just one reason. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> uh that person's in charge. But anyway, also but, this country was never great. Yes, yeah. and it well it was never great for everyone. Yeah, it's only exactly. ever been great for a select few people at the very, very top who, because they're at the top, are able to do a whatever the fuck they want and b like even do really conflicting things. Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yes. Um, yep. And then be like upheld as these heroes for. What? Like. Writing yeah. some stuff that sounds a little not racist, but actually did yeah. a bunch of racist shit. It's never been great, you guys. This has never it never has been. Yeah. And and one thing uh that this book talks about is um Bacon's Rebellion, which happened when um not only uh slaves but also poor whites joined into this rebellion to um, kind of like overthrow some plantations. Um, and after this happened, uh, obviously the the fucking like army came in and like crushed all of it. And then, um, it says, uh, rich planters learned from Bacon's rebellion that poor whites had to be forever separated from enslaved blacks. 
So they divided and conquered by creating more white privileges. Um, Mm -hmm. All whites now wielded absolute power to abuse any African person. By the early 18th century, every Virginia county had a militia of landless whites ready in case of any sudden eruption of Indians or insurrection of Negroes. Poor whites had risen into their lowly place in slave society, the armed defenders of planters, a place that would sow bitter animosity between them and enslaved Africans. So just... And we see that today. (laughs) Yeah, just the proof of of people who think that, that they're benefiting themselves just because they can have a little bit of power over someone underneath them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the same thing with with all the white women who are anti-feminist. Like, or who are calling cops on people in parks. Yeah. Great example. Like, what, <laughs> what power do you think you have, really? Oh, man. This it's is so fucking um, sad. Yeah. <laughs> What's so infuriating about a lot of the conversation around this recently is that, hold on, I need to like think about how to say this <laughs> like tactfully. Um, give me a sec. Justin just brought me a whiskey, so <laughs> this might also, I'm going to need it, but I'm like, wait. <laughs> people want to, white people want to dismiss dismiss racism as solely just a, an ideology that's based in hate and prejudice, which this book disproves. And it's so difficult to just, like, sh- show people historical example after historical example that actually affects the class of people that they're in, too, as poor mm-hmm. white people, and not have them make any connection that this is a system that was built and not just about, eh, I don't like black people. Like, right. I yeah. saw, and I'm just citing this as one example of a stupid <laughs> thing, but I saw in Unfriended a person who posted this... Um, <laughs> and Unfriended. <laughs> it was a meme. I've unfriended so many people <laughs> recently. Um it was a just a picture of like every different color Labrador dog. So like oh, no. you know, the really, really light, like yellow labs all the way from chocolate to black lab. And it was like it said like we're all the same type of dog. Racism is stupid. And I was like Holy shit. Like <laughs> I've just like never seen someone missed the point that hard and then she shared it again like a week later like in case you guys didn't see my big enlightened moment i want to talk about this again and i'm like but it's that not, is the whitest not white person thing happened. i've heard today it's not this is not like yeah. a, a a color preference <laughs> issue right. like you have failed <laughs> yeah like we're we're past the point of being like like whenever someone says like I don't judge people for the color of their skin. It's like, we, this isn't like, we're not in the fourth grade. Like, we need, <laughs> we need to have some more serious conversations about this that are a little bit more um, nuanced than, like, literally, like, I don't judge you based on the color of your skin. Because, like, yeah, most people don't look at someone who's black and think they're black and therefore blah, blah, blah. But, like, there are things that happen in your head as a person who has been raised in 
a system of racism that you don't even realize are racist. And that's, like, something that, like, like I, as a white person, I'm constantly trying to examine my reactions to anything that happens in my life where I think for a second, like, why did I just think that thing? Like, is that something that I actually feel? Or is that, like, a message that has been planted in me that is not actually true, you know? Um, and the same thing goes for, for like, feminism, for all kinds of things that we um, have been taught and are having to unlearn, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, it doesn't – like, it is uncomfortable to acknowledge that kind of stuff within yourself. But, like, you have to do it because otherwise you're not going to get better. I looked at so many reviews today that used the word – uncomfortable to describe this book <laughs> and I'm like hey, a white person wrote that <laughs> hey, right. first of all right. <laughs> but right. like yeah I mean it it is uncomfortable for people who like think that they live in the quote-unquote like greatest country in the world for the record right. I don't think that never have right. um but to acknowledge like the real truth about how long this has been going on and why it was built and why it is like ingrained into the very fabric of like the founding documents of our country that we still uphold as yeah I'm defending the constitution and shit today um which reminds me of my favorite um one of my favorite onion headlines area man staunch defender of what he believes constitution to be yes but Um, yeah like it's uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable for white people generally to have to acknowledge by being white and by benefiting from the system i've been part of the problem whether i was conscious of it or not and i like that this book takes apart the the argument that intention has any bearing on what happened like it doesn't matter if you're a well-meaning white person you're still contributing yeah yeah and like you know what you should feel uncomfortable because your discomfort is never going to be anywhere near as bad as the discomfort that black people in this country have to live with every second of every day yeah so like sit in that discomfort and think about how lucky you are that that's the worst that it gets for you Speaking of speaking of comfort, I w- just made me think of this thing that I was watching right before we started this call. Um, it's from an episode of The Daily Show that came on this week. Um, but Trevor Noah did a segment where he was talking about or, or talking to and about um, black people in the workplace. And one of the things that was really interesting, this wasn't like totally news to me. But just like having it framed this way was kind of like, as a white person, I think it's something we need to think about. Um, just the fact that every day um, when these black people go to work in a professional setting, they're constantly thinking about how to make white people feel comfortable with them being there. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a discomfort that black people have to live with every day. And this gets back to this idea of assimilation and, um, and putting the responsibility on black people to like prove themselves. And again, like I think as white people, we know all of that stuff is happening, 
Like, it's not news to us that black people have to act white to seem professional. You know, we've all heard that before. But I think, like, when you hear black people talk about that and how, like, it's just, like, every single time they enter a space that's predominantly white people, it's about, it's suddenly about, like, how do I make these people feel comfortable with my existence? Mm -hmm. And as a white person, like, I can't understand, I can never understand what that's like. But just hearing them put it that way kind of for for like I made me understand like a tiny portion of what that must feel like. Yeah. And so I think it's important, like even even if you if you, you know, like even if like you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read this book or you have read this book and you think like, well, I was aware of most of this stuff, like I didn't know it to this degree, but like I was aware that assimilation was the thing. I was aware that racism has always been a problem, like being aware of it and taking a moment to like listen and and hear like the extent of it, I think are there are like there are levels, right? And I think that that's why you see so many white people, um, people of all colors, probably, but you know, a lot of these people that are buying these anti-racist books are probably white people who feel like they need to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why you see a lot of white people doing this, and I know like. There, I've seen some critiques of that, like on social media and stuff. Like, why are you, why are you suddenly like buying all these anti-racist books? Um, but I think it's important to not only be aware of it, but like educate yourself to the extent of it. To we because we can't we can't sympathize. We can never understand, but we can become more empathetic. Um. So. Yes. Yeah, that's my plug for the the book and just but it just it just made me think of that segment from the Daily Show when you were talking about comfort because this whole idea of like having to be uncomfortable it's like well black people have to be fucking uncomfortable every exactly. day to well, yeah. to accommodate us. Yeah, and, you know? and it goes so much beyond discomfort to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean like it goes into fear. Fear. And, yes. Yes. Yeah. We do not ever have to feel that kind of fear. No. Oh. Hey, Roger. <laughs> Roger's here to just emphasize that He's point. He's like, I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do want to get into this um, intersectionality thing because as a feminist, um, I found the sections of the book where he's talking about um, – black women and how black women are sort of left out of the conversation of anti-racism. Very interesting and something that we should talk about. Um, and I think we should also talk about how black women have been left out of feminism traditionally as well. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think to me, I felt like reading the book, Kendi did a pretty good job throughout of kind of like pointing that out Yeah. Um, throughout history. So I, I appreciated that. But let's talk a little bit about, I don't know, like why that is and is that changing and do we see or do we see black women being included more in the anti-racist movements we see today? I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, one thing that like I have I have known for a long time, but that is just like something to be aware of is that when it comes to like women's suffrage, for example, like people like Susan B. Anthony were fucking racist ass. Yeah. Yeah. Like the fact that they basically decided um, 
our right to vote is more important than, like, yes. the, the black movement. So we're just going to focus on that. Like, uh, mm-hmm. the, I think the voting rights thing is a really good like a really good illustration of how it really becomes about black men's rights versus white women's rights. Yeah. Yeah. And then black women are somewhere in the middle. Like where the fuck do you like, what about our rights? Right. (laughs) And then the whole, the whole idea of like, which we talked about a little bit earlier, but like the sexualization. Yeah. Oh, I definitely want to talk about that a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. Of, of not just, like black people, but black women specifically. Um, Mm -hmm. And there, there is like a whole section that goes into the idea that um, like black men are, and, and this has been a thing and continues to be a thing where, you know, so many black men were accused of raping white women. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have uh, like, but, but then when white men, like, it's like black men aren't allowed to desire white women, mm-hmm. but white men are allowed to desire black women because black women are just sexual. Like, yeah. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's, it becomes this weird thing where it's like, we're not supposed to have interracial relations. Like we're not supposed to have interracial sex. We're not supposed to do that, except it doesn't count when it's a white man and a black woman because a black woman is basically just a sex object. So that doesn't count. Yeah. Um, and that's like such a, a huge problem. Um, and, and a lot of it, like, you know, there were, there was like the, what, what did they call her? The woman who had like, like really big breasts. And so they like sexualized her and kind of took her around as almost like a, like a circus performer. Oh yeah. Okay. The, the hot and tot Venus. Um, the woman's name was Sarah Bartman. Um, and she was basically brought into like circus freak shows because she had like, she was like very curvy. She had very like a large, butt and like large breasts and uh they they basically took her around and showed like look at how like sexual african women are um Mm -hmm. like isn't this crazy and then from that point forward sort of like created this idea of like the hypersexual black woman Mm -hmm. um so that's like disturbing and also like, throughout there is also a lot of reluctance on the part, it seems, of black men to defend black women. Um, And, you know, that's something that I think, like, continues to be a problem just because men continue to be a problem. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I do, like, I think, you know, black women have, like, the double, like, difficulty of being not only black but also being women it's like the two things that suck (laughs) like go together or the two things not that they suck but the two things that are really hard you know yeah um because like you know women are oppressed and black people are oppressed so then you have a black woman it's like really like just neglected in every sense yeah so and I mean, we kind of 
see this with, I mean, hopefully by now, by the time this is being published, maybe something will be different, but Brianna Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> which like her story wasn't even in the news for like the longest time. And now like, as of this recording, only one of the cops who shot her has even been fired. Yeah. And in the Black Lives Matter movement, which was created by women, um, they eventually brought out a second phrase, say her name, because yeah. so many people would be chanting the name of men in the names mm-hmm. of men in these protests, which like, of course, they need to be heard, too. But, you know, like, the women are often just like completely forgotten about. Um And even now, like, the say her name thing has been co-opted into say his name. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are marching through the streets, you hear, like, say his name, George Floyd, George Floyd. And, like, of course, again, like, we want to say his name. But, like, that phrase, like, specifically for protests and marching was, like, created to honor black women and was co-opted like into putting the focus back on black men there's a ted talk about this that i've seen like floating around recently and i've only oh, like, really so far caught the beginning of it but it's like the speaker has the speaker's a black woman and she has everyone stand up and she's like reading names off and it's like once you've heard once she says a name that you've never heard before, sit down. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, like, she starts with all these black men who have been killed by police that we know their names. Eric Garner, mm-hmm. um, Freddie Gray, George Floyd, Mike Brown. Um, and so everyone's still standing. And then as soon as she says, like, one woman's name that's been killed by police in in very similar ways, um, like, loses half the people. The next female name half the people and she's like the only difference in you know these names and these names is that they're women and then like Mm -hmm. she shows pictures of them and they're also not recognizable faces to you um like we all know what Trayvon Martin looks like we all know what Mike Brown looks like um luckily I think we all know what Breonna Taylor looks like so yeah that's good but I mean there are this is also happening to black women Yeah. yeah Yes. I'm going to have to find that so we can link it. Yeah, we should link <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, do that. Um, uh, do we want to talk about pop culture stuff? Sure. I, f- okay. I found this stuff really interesting. Yeah, so, well, yeah, I did. I, I mean, because I've consumed a lot of this pop culture. Uh, <laughs> and I put the color purple on there for a reason, because there is some interesting things that to talk about with that color purple is like one of my favorite books. So that's why that's there. It does. It doesn't fit with the other ones, but I also want to talk about it, but you know, this book throughout kind of talks about, and we talked about it a little bit earlier in the episode, how pop culture literature um, reflects and sometimes not so subtly amplifies racist ideas um, that are going on in the culture at the time, birth of a nation, Tarzan, Planet of the Apes, Rocky, The Cosby Show. Those are some of the examples. I don't know if there's one specifically you guys want to talk about a little bit or one that was particularly surprising to you, one you hadn't thought about before. Um, 
feel like I know we need to talk Cosby because we already yeah. <laughs> like sort of started <laughs> to talk about it earlier. So there's obviously yeah, some I stuff think we need to get out. For me, like the Cosby show and you know, like Susan, I talked to you about this a little bit earlier, but um I think one of the reasons to me, like the last section of this book was so interesting, aside from just all the Angela Davis stuff is like, you know, a lot of, like we're getting into like I was alive for this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and not I think recent history like that is really interesting to me because I'm like, okay, I was alive for this, but like not aware of what was going on. And so to sort of like look back at a time when like I was here, but like wasn't critically thinking about what was happening is like really interesting to me. So like Cosby show is something that, you know, I was a very young child when Cosby show was on, but like I loved the Cosby show. Like I loved it. Like it was my favorite. I called it Cosby bill. It was my favorite show. Like a little toddler watching the damn Cosby show. <laughs> like I loved it. So to me, like obviously like having to look back and critically think about the Cosby show, obviously it's something that we have all done recently because Bill Cosby is, you know, He's been in the news for all he sorts is a of sexual terrible things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've all had to rethink our feelings about the Cosby Show, but this um, looks. This book is looking at the Cosby Show also and how it is all about that uplessuasion. Um and you know I think too like and we look at things that Bill Cosby has said. <laughs> Um, and a lot of it's really problematic mm-hmm. again, not just, bec- he, not to make light of the fact that he's a sexual predator, because obviously that's really bad and problematic too, yeah. but his eyes, ideas about race, uh, is kind of what I want to talk about now, because maybe some of that, while not surprising, maybe we hadn't really like thought about or looked at. Yeah. Like I hadn't, I wasn't fully aware of, of the very sort of like respectability politics that he was getting into with these like, like talks he was giving about how, you know, like the parents need to be better to their black children because like you guys are fucking it up. And like, (laughs) yeah, like that's the reason why there's so much crime. Just like these like general statements about how, you know, it's again, once again on black people to, fix problems that like they didn't start you know right um and and yeah the whole cosby show is about this like you know upper class black family who sort of like uh i guess pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made a family that is super like white coated in a way. Oh yeah, and they have so many white friends. Yeah, and they're all wearing like sweaters. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very I mean, it's a very like palatable show for white people. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't really know what to add to that. That sounded that sounded good what you said. <laughs> um well, I w- I would love to hear your thoughts on the color purple. Well, I mean, so I think the thing that, and this is kind of backtracking a little bit, right? Because the color purple is all about black feminism. Um, and I think one of the things 
that is brought up is that like it, it does point out misogyny in like within black culture. And I think that's a little, um, it's difficult, right? Because you, you, you want to, you don't want to like make any black person look bad, I guess. Again, like, I don't know how to talk about this without sounding like a dumb white person, but, um, you know, like, but there is a problem with misogyny and like we were talking about, like there's a problem where like men aren't black men aren't standing up for black women. Um, so it's sort of like, I think one of the things that like critique of the color purple points out is that there is a, um, once again, there's like this pressure on black women to sort of choose like between being a woman and being black. And I think we see this a lot. I don't know. Like, did we talk about this on an episode before about like domestic violence and black women and how like black women are less likely to report issues of domestic violence? Or did I have this conversation with somebody else? I'm not sure. I don't okay, well, remember that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, this is a, pro- this is a problem yeah. where in, you know, black people are, black women are less likely to um, report domestic violence. They're, a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is like you don't get police officers involved. Right. But there's also like loyalty to, um, their race, Mm -hmm. you know, over like protection of their gender, I guess for, for lack of a better way to explain that. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that the color purple is kind of doing is like saying like, no, like it's, it's important to like speak up as a black woman and say like, you know, like even within our race, like black men are treating us like shit. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you guys have read the book. I haven't. Um, it's really fucking good. I should read it. Yeah. I haven't and, read it either. Uh, or I lots of, of queer, lots too. of queer romance happening in that book. Oh, so yes, I'll get right on that. <laughs> um, also what I found interesting and I haven't read this either, but, um, I found it interesting reading about Zora Neale Hur- uh, Hurston yeah. Um, and the reception to their eyes were watching God, uh, which, again, I haven't read it, but apparently is like kind of exploring like a woman, a black woman's love story and like her like blooming into her adulthood and her sexuality and stuff like that. And yeah, um, when it was published, it like did not do well. And people sort of like discounted it because they were like, this is like frivolous and, like, the the kind of critiques that you hear about women's fiction in general, but even worse, because it's a black woman. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I thought that was really interesting, too, considering, like, now she's thought of as, like, one of the greatest writers, you know? Um, yeah. I haven't read that one either. I read one of her other books, um, but not that one. I have. Yeah. I, w- I would like to read her work because she uh, – this book is set in central Florida, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I read that. Um, in like a early college lit class. Yeah. Um, I was kind of surprised I hadn't read it before that too. Like, cause I feel like I hear of it being assigned a lot. It's kind of, I guess it's good well, that it's assigned reading. We're probably not talking about the right things when we talk about it, but. I mean, I couldn't I'm tell just, you a single <laughs> book by a black woman that I was assigned in high yes. school. That's what I was going to, I was like, I think in general, there's a problem with the books that we're getting assigned. Yeah. Um, and Ben and I were just talking about this the other day. And I know this is kind of like on a, it's a tangent and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but 
I maintain they need to stop assigning Great Gatsby in high school because you're not fucking ready to read it then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I will say, because you've said that to me before, and I've said, fair, but I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, but most most high school students don't. Yeah. And I think think then what happens then is you get assigned it again in college, um, and then people are like, oh, fucking Great Gatsby again. And it's like, no, but, like, if you read it now... Yeah. Like you have a little bit more experience and we can talk about what's going on in it more openly because we're not in high school. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I've definitely gotten think, more out of it after rereading it than exactly. I did in high school. Exactly. But at, at the time, I think I just liked it because it was like easy to read, but also felt meaningful somehow. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those books and I think the reason it gets assigned and I'm sorry, and then we'll get back on track and I do have a point. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the reasons it gets assigned early is because like, it's very easy to explain mm-hmm. symbolism in that book. Like yeah. if you want to talk about symbolism in literature, like the green light is a very obvious, Yeah. right? Like anybody can understand that. Like there's just lots of really obvious symbolism. Doesn't mean it's a bad book. It just means like, you know, it's easy to teach in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> I think uh, my point being like, maybe wait and teach that in college and replace it with some books by some awesome black women. Yeah, I'm going to say real quick, just as a shout out to this professor that did assign Zora Neale Hurston. She is also the reason I knew who Phyllis Wheatley was before I read this. Um, She, which is also in an American lit class. There was like a first semester and a second semester. And we actually did read quite a few black women specifically, which is awesome. So that is a shout out to Dr. Hoshwinder. I'm sure she's listening. (laughs) (laughs) You should tell her to listen, you know, like. Be like, you got a shout out, you know, here, you know, here's a little tip for p- podcasters out there listening to this. Just shout some people out on your podcast and then tell them to listen because you shouted them out. And like half the time they'll listen because people just love hearing about themselves. I'm going <laughs> to hit up every single high school teacher I had and be like, hey, I talk about books on a podcast. I couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> I have criticized your specific class a lot, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> any other pop culture references or things that they brought up? I thought the Rocky one was interesting. That was interesting. I'm not, I'm not like a huge Rocky person. I have seen the first Rocky movie and I've seen the first Creed movie. Yeah. And that's about it. I have not seen but any I, of them. But I mean, like, in case you, I feel like I shouldn't be the one to explain this because, like, I, again, like, I haven't seen very much Rocky. But basically, the idea is there's this like super strong black man, powerful black man, Apollo Creed, who's basically supposed to be like Muhammad Ali or something. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen no it. Rocky. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so you actually are the one that should be explaining. Yeah. You are the most qualified. This is this is gonna be exactly like my uh, X Men thing, where I'm like, I know nothing about this, but let me explain <laughs> it to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so strong, powerful black man who is taken down by like a scrappy white dude, Italian. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and there was, like, a whole thing about, like, there were multiple, um, like, bla- like, black male boxers who, 
uh, had been champions. And then it was kind of like this, this like ideal to be able to have like a white um, athlete beat them or something yeah. because but then oh, yeah, that's something we haven't really talked about a lot either, but something that he talks about a lot throughout the book too, is like the super um, physicality of black people. Yeah. And like, there's this whole thing where like, apparently um, black people are lazy. So they want to sleep all the time, but they don't have to sleep all the time because they've got like super strength. So they don't need as much sleep as white people. So they should be working. It's there are so many insane <laughs> like, like ideas that were <laughs> posed in like just like some of the things that these people wrote in books that they published. I'm like yeah, like I'm probably saying stupid shit, but like we're just like having a conversation. We're like, publishing well, this we conversation. Publishing this conversation, but I didn't like proofread this <laughs> conversation. Okay, <laughs> someone wrote that down. And then they read it again, and they were like, yeah, sounds good. Yep, that's it. <laughs> Just a, a pop culture slash sports example from my own life that I wanted to talk about. Not my own life, but my own experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. let's. I like, I like taking yeah, these so things and applying them to other Serena stuff. Williams real quick. Let's do that. So I played tennis growing up. I played tennis mm-hmm. in college. I still watch tennis you know, when there's not a global pandemic happening and tennis is on. Um, Tennis is a very white sport, historically speaking. Um, You can name a couple black tennis players because they're the only ones, like Arthur Ashe. You heard him. Venus and Serena. But people, Serena is one of the greatest tennis players, male or female, of all time, period. Because she is more muscular than a lot of people she plays against, because she is, uh, she's wearing the same types of outfits they're wearing, but on her, people act like they're too sexual because she has bigger boobs than they do. Um, And her ass is like solid muscle, (laughs) but people want to act like her clothes are too tight because she's more muscular than they are. I just, I have seen so much uh, like coded language about her, her body, her power, the way that she handle her confidence, even the way that she handles winning is like, oh, that's not um, sportsmanlike enough. It's like there's, I mean, mm-hmm. she's gotten like she's been asked to like change her outfit before and told like you can't wear that to the next match because it's so tight. Everyone else is wearing the fucking same shit, so. I don't know where I'm going with this other than to say it's like there are still a lot of things currently where black people are kept out of these white spaces, even though they're doing the thing that the white people are doing so much better than the white people Mm -hmm. are doing it. And like, it drives me nuts when I hear people talk about that. She's like too loud and stuff like Claudia Rankin talks about this in, what is that fucking poetry collection? It's really super baller and it's really good. She's a black poet. Okay, the one I read was Citizen, though. Citizen, thank you. Okay. Yes. There's. Um, I did it. I helped with poetry. <laughs> the one with the hoodie on the front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I'm pretty sure, and now I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, but I'm pretty sure that was a reference to Trayvon Martin. Um. Just 
say it. Like, you know, that's what I've been doing this whole time. Like, I don't know totally where I'm going with this other than to just say, like, I wanted to talk about some other pop culture shit no. that I see happening all the time. But notably recently, so Serena Williams is married to Alexis Ohanian, co-founder of Reddit, and he recently fucking quit. Like, he resigned from the Reddit board for yeah, racism reasons. And said that he recommended that the board replace him with a black person and said that he was doing this because he's thinking about, like, I have this family now. Like, they have a black child. It's just, it's, all these little things are tying together for me right now. But this is all to say Serena's the goat. And if you don't think so, maybe you're racist. Well, that, that makes me think, too, about, you know, what they they said about Michelle Obama's body. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. Sorry. You can talk about it. (laughs) Oh no. It's just funny because that is like towards the end of the book when, uh, all of these criticisms of Michelle Obama, because she's like tall and muscular and people just like, like the horrible things that people were saying about her, the horrible racist things people were saying about her, like comparing her to like, animals and like monkeys and shit like that which is just like how like how can you say something like that in this day and age like and not like I just can't understand how you could even begin to let that come out of your mouth you know I saw some of that right after right after Donald Trump was elected because I think people were really just emboldened to say whatever the fuck racist bullshit they wanted to say. Right. And it was like, finally, like a classy woman in the white house, like not like this manly. I'm like, uh, that's, I know you don't think she's classy for any other reason than you're saying she's white. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, I'm sorry. In in what way is Melania classy? (laughs) But or classier than Michelle Obama, who is still the most educated first lady we've ever had. And that's just one good thing about her. She's great. We love her. She's wonderful. Well, Um, and like even the shit that people say about the Obama children. Yeah. Yeah. Is shocking. Shocking. Yeah. And and no other family in the White House has ever had to deal with with that. And of course it's not surprising because no other family in the white house has ever been black. So true. Uh, although if you listen to things that Donald Trump says, you would think that he has been treated worse than anyone in history. He did say he was treated worse than everyone, every yeah. single president. Yeah. Like <sighs> I feel bad. that I left out Venus Williams from what I was saying, because <laughs> I feel like people are meaner to Serena, <laughs> but <laughs> For a long time, yeah. they played each other in, like, the finals yeah. of so many tournaments. Yeah. And the commentary was like, oh, we're so sick of just, like, seeing these two people play each other. And I'm like, they're the two fucking best ones. Right. This is like, the best tennis match you could ask for. What do you want? Yeah. <laughs> it's so stupid. And then I, this book also went into a lot, like talking about the athleticism or like supposed like biological athleticism of black people. And then it was like, you know, but if there's a, a black person who isn't athletic, then they're just like not a real black person yeah, or like a black person who doesn't have like rhythm is not a real black person or whatever. Like all of these ideas that are like, like biologically, this is what black people are like. Yeah. Um, 
which are also problematic. Like, there's so many ways to be racist that aren't just, like, I dislike black people. Like, that's, like, the very, you know, most basic way <laughs> to be racist. But, like, I, fe- I feel like, and this this is something that I feel like a lot of, like, older people in, like, older generations don't understand, that even, like, saying something about a race that you think is, like, a compliment is, like, still racist because you are making, like, a general yeah. statement about a group of people that is based on their race. <laughs> so that this was another interesting thing um, that it ta- that this book talked about, which was that um, in in the discussions of segregation, there were a lot of black people who were like in some ways pro segregation because they were like, you know, as black people, like we should be able to have our own spaces. Mm-hmm. And like, that was something that was like kind of, it wasn't like entirely new to me, but something that I hadn't often um, thought about just the fact that like, I think there's, I I think I highlighted a part that talks about it actually. Hold on. That's so the that problem with listening is you don't get to highlight yeah I just tried to take notes yeah so this was in the the section or part about Marcus Garvey which was also really interesting to me because I was not familiar with him but there is a street like that runs through Brooklyn called Marcus Garvey Boulevard and I always wondered who he was and now I know so (laughs) um anyway uh so Garvey was one of the people uh talking about segregation being like a good thing in some cases so um garvey's assimilationist opponents failed to realize that there was nothing inherently tolerant or intolerant about americans voluntarily separating themselves or integrating themselves americans routinely did separate and integrate themselves voluntarily based on religion gender ethnicity sexuality profession class race and social interests Separatist organizing can be racist, and when it is, it turns into segregation, if the emphasis is on excluding inferior peoples. Interracial organizing can be racist, and when it is, it turns into assimilation, if the emphasis is on elevating inferior blacks by putting them under the auspices... Auspices? I don't know how to say that word. uh, Of superior whites. So I thought that was really interesting, that, like, like, separating by like into different groups isn't automatically bad or good um and integrating isn't automatically bad or good it's about like why you're doing it (laughs) yeah so i feel like rating this book seems a little weird um because this just it feels like it's an important book and so rather than rating it i feel like we should just say like this is an important book Maybe try to read it if you've got the time. Um, yeah. You know, if you're interested in this kind of thing, and I'm assuming you are if you listen to this whole shenanigan. So uh, maybe <laughs> try to read it. again. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, our attempt to to do justice to this book in our conversation. But um, if you have read this and you want further reading suggestions, I thought maybe that's something we should offer because I know – that a lot of people are looking to read more books by black authors. 
Um, I had a couple that I wanted to shout out and I wanted to give you guys an opportunity as well. Um, so I can do mine. And then if you guys have some, I'll give you a moment to think about it. <laughs> um, so some of the ones I want to talk about, I want to start by mentioning we were eight years in power by Tana Hisi Coates. Um, I'm, I want to start with this one because we're actually reading his fiction debut next um, for the next podcast episode. So I get to put in a little plug for that. So that would be another great book to read if you're looking for more black authors to read. And that's The Water Dancer. Um, but we were eight years in power. If you're looking for more or for more books on anti-racism, I think we, we were eight years in power is a really great follow up to this because it looks at how black people have been a part of politics. And especially like as the title suggests, this looks at how the um Obama presidency went down and how uh, white America has responded to that presidency. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that it would be a great follow up. It's definitely covering some similar topics, but it's definitely going in a different direction um, and going into other things as well. So yeah. I would suggest that, but also I would suggest reading his fiction book along with us for our next podcast. I also, if you want to read more about intersectional feminism, I would suggest Can We All Be Feminists, which is, and I didn't write the author's name down. I've got it here. I'm sorry, y'all. Um, this is a essay collection from a bunch of different um, black authors, including... Well, not just black authors, but authors of color, including uh, Britt Bennett, who we have read on the podcast and are reading again on the podcast. So, yes. so this is a really great look at intersectional feminism. And then looking more specifically at black feminism, I would suggest Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. And then you should also be reading fiction by black authors. So if you're looking for fiction by black authors that looks at um, issues of racism and anti-racism. One that I read recently is Lakewood by Megan Giddings that just came out this year. Um, it's sort of like a sci-fi look at how um, black people and minorities are exploited. And then we've also recently had a book come out. We, I say it like I did it, but I didn't. <laughs> but we, meaning like readers, have this book available to us. Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. I haven't read this one yet, but I just got it. Um, and yeah, it's supposed to be really good. And it's about a black nanny who gets accused of kidnapping a child. So seems like it is topical and interesting. So those are my nonfiction and fiction recommendations for further reading. What about you guys? I have. So this first book is by a white person. It's the one I referenced earlier. Um, and although it is by a white person, I think it's very important right now. So it's White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I say it's important right now because I think that what I've personally witnessed lately in trying to talk about this and trying to talk about racism with white people is that there's it's met with a lot of defensiveness, and I've been guilty of that same defensiveness too. Um, in the past and um, this really digs into like where that comes from and why and how we can work against it to then be anti-racist 
So there's that. And then I'm going to plug some poetry. So I mentioned Citizen earlier by, by Claudia Rankin. It is great. And it also um, addresses some um, racial topics. Uh, and then three other poets um, who are black that I really love. And I've actually heard all three of them read, which is um, was a privilege for all in each case, um, L. Lamar Wilson, Kevin Young, and Marcus Wicker. They, uh, everything I've read by um, all three of them has been great. So pick any collection among them um, and read it. Nice. Um, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, though I'm trying to read nonfiction right now because it's important. So this is the first nonfiction book I've read in quite a while. Um <laughs> But I do, I figured I would recommend some of the books that we've read on the podcast by uh, black authors um, that are fiction. And like, and I saw a tweet recently that I thought was really instructive in just that, like, it's important to read about, you know, anti-racism and it's important to read about, um, like, the like, incomprehensible struggles that Black people have faced. But also it's important to read, like, Black joy and to read about Black happiness and to read stories that are just, like, like by Black people. It's just, like, a different perspective. Um, and, like, part of, of, like, learning how to empathize with other people is through, like, experiencing stories through other people's eyes, you know? So... Definitely, like, try to um, bulk up your fiction list with Black authors, too. Um, Emily just mentioned uh, Britt Bennett, who we read The Mothers on the podcast, which is, like, one of my favorite books we've read. So definitely recommend that. And we will be reading The Vanishing Half, which I haven't read yet, but is probably good. So you should read that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just going to assume it's good. Um, Also, I enjoyed Freshwater uh, by Akweke Emezi. I'm pretty sure that's how you say her name. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so those are like some of the recent ones. And then this isn't technically a book, but uh, the documentary um, I Am Not Your Negro is basically like, it's almost like an audiobook because it's like, um, it's James Baldwin, like, letters from him and, like, portions of a manuscript that he had planned to finish but never finished. Um, and it's sort of about um, the connections between three black men who were murdered, um, two of them being um, Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X. And then, hold on, I'm going to look up the name of the third one because I don't remember it at this moment. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Medgar Evers is the third. So uh, this documentary is, like, so beautiful and powerful. And if you haven't watched it, I really recommend it because it's really just a narration, um, which is done by Samuel L. Jackson, actually. Uh, Just, like, speaking in Baldwin's voice, reading his words. um, And there's just, like, clips to go along with it. And it's, like, so simply done, but so well done and has just like the beautiful, beautiful language um, of James Baldwin. So check that out. Yeah. 
we do have a little bit of feedback from our last other episode, which was on another really um, lighthearted and fun topic. Um, that's what it was Atlanta's missing and murdered the lost children. And this is from Darcy in Wyoming. Does someone want to read this? Listening to the podcast, two thoughts. Most of our parents didn't talk about the crimes. They were scared, but never, ever talked about stuff like we do now. Also, there were only three channels to watch. We didn't see what was going on in the rest of the country. Lastly, social media makes it so you know so much more. I was in junior high when this happened. Told you I was old. We never learned about it. Love to you all. Love to you too, Darcy. Thank you for writing in. Um, Yeah, I mean, we talked about the racial reasons why um, people don't know about this as much. But, I mean, I don't know why I didn't even think about (laughs) social media (laughs) um, being a thing. But, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that social media is around right now because I think that so much of what's happening currently is being learned about because of that. But, um, yeah, I mean, in a time where you could easily be shielded from it with three channels and parents who were scared. Yeah. I mean. Yes. I mean, I can totally see how, I mean, the fact that like I didn't learn about lots of history because nobody taught it to me. And, (laughs) you know, so I, yeah, I think that like, that's a good point that especially like your parents not telling you because they didn't want to scare you. Yeah. But. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's not great guys. It's not great out there. All right. Yeah. Um, so you might have noticed, I don't know if anybody noticed, but our blog has been kind of paused. Um, so, I just, I mean, it's not just because we're lazy, okay? Um, Maybe it's a little bit because we're lazy, but also we just kind of feel like right now is not the time to be listening to what a bunch of white people think about the world. Um, And so we're just taking this moment to um, silence the blog. We don't have any bash their content going on right now anyway. Um, so, but just, just a chance to silence the blog and just give space for black voices to take, take some, not that we're like pulling attention away from that many people anyway, cause it's not like we get a bunch of, we have like 10 readers, readers. but it just, it just seemed like, you know, we're reading the room and it just seems like now is not the time to like blog about, you know, white people things. So, which is essentially what we would be doing. Yeah. So we've been kind of quiet on the blog. We have been posting on social media some links and some suggestions for people maybe you should be reading instead of us at the moment. Um, and we will continue to do that. I'm sure that we will start posting on the blog again soon. I don't want to give a definitive date because we're just kind of feeling it out right now and yeah. seeing when it feels right. But as for right now, we're just kind of feeling a little down and not really feeling like blogging about fun, silly stuff at the moment. It's just kind of, that's just kind of our mood. So that's why there's nothing on the blog. I don't know. Does that, is that enough? Does anyone have anything else they want to say about that? I think that's good. And I had said that I was going to make a resource list thing, get, or get that started, but I didn't do it. And then, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do that. Um, but yeah. (laughs) Um, but we are still podcasting and we've got some great stuff coming up. So next on the pod, on our next book episode, we'll be talking about 
as I mentioned earlier, The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, as is tradition, I haven't started reading it yet, but I probably should start <laughs> soon because I feel like this is going to be a heavy one. Um, just to follow it up, let's just keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we like to keep it heavy there, around here. But there is a teeny bit of magical realism happening in this book as far as I know, and I'm excited. Um, I got to see this author speak at AWP one year, and I just loved what he had to say and he just seems like a really cool person. So I've been really looking forward to reading this book and, um, yeah, I should probably start soon, but I'm looking forward to talking about it, even though I don't really know what's going to happen. <laughs> I like to keep it that way. Then I guess I'm going to introduce this one cause Mary's not here, but on our next other, so we will be talking about, and I can't believe this. We're going to be talking about Hamilton <laughs> Oh my god! I never thought I would get to see Hamilton. Me neither. But guess but it's, what? It's on Disney Plus, so you guys so can watch can it too. All watch it. So we're all gonna watch it, and Mary's gonna lead that episode because she's definitely like the Hamilton person out of all of us. Yes, and um, her new husband Todd will yes. be joining. Oh yeah, um, that's right. Oh, I forgot yeah. to mention that we are going to have a guest on the the Water Dancer episode, too. Oh, yeah. Um, Saeed will be our guest. Yes. You might remember Saeed from our Lion King episode. If not, go check that out and get yeah. to get hyped for this next time he's going to be with us. But, yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Uh. Congratulations to Mary, who is married at this point. Yay. Yeah. Mary is married. Mary Todd Lincoln. Mrs. Mary. Mrs. Mary Stevens. Mrs. Mary. Dr. Mary Stevens. She's still a doctor before she's a Mrs. as far as I'm fucking concerned. But won't she now be Dr. Mary like. Osborne? Yes, that's true. Dr. Mary Osborne. I still love getting mail that says doctor. I don't get any mail that says doctor. Really? My grandma's the only one that does it? Actually, sorry. <laughs> in case she should ever listen. Grandmother. She, she hates the word grandma. Um, oh. Yeah. See, I'm from Louisiana. Sure my grandma is mama. That. Mama. My grandma is my mama. My grandmother is Grammy because she also hates grandma and grandmother because both of them sound old. Oh, okay. I can only say but grandmother right. in reference to Somehow her. We Grammy call doesn't. her mama mama. Hmm. That's, I guess, what I called her as a child. I was the first I'm leaving this in this so episode because... <laughs> This is staying in the episode. This feels like necessary content. So, <laughs> yeah. Write us with what do you call your grandmother? And yeah, write yeah. us in. Let us know. And also write us thoughts about this book if you read it. Yeah. Uh, suggestions for other things to read. Yeah. Along these lines, yeah. or by black authors, or both. Yeah. You could write us about so many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so many different things. And you can direct those notes to the squad at booksquadgoals.com. Or you could DM us on Instagram at booksquadgoals or message us on Facebook at booksquadgoals or uh, at us or DM us on Twitter at booksquadgoals. We would love to hear from you. We'd also love if you would subscribe, give us a rating, um, and tell your friends to listen. Uh, please remember to continue uh fighting for racial justice because it is important and it is a lifelong work that we have to do and we have not said it explicitly enough on this podcast before 
even though we do try to make sure that we're including, you know, works by people of color, but I feel like we have to be a little more active in what we say. So we are saying, please donate to something, uh, go to a march if you can, Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, try. And just in case we haven't made it clear yet, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Black Lives Matter. We're not trying to dance around that. We, like, we believe that. And we don't think that should be a political statement. Like, that just seems obvious. Yeah. Also, you know what else isn't political? Wearing a damn mask and staying inside. (laughs) That's not political either. So do it. That's just science, okay? (laughs) I could have a whole two-hour episode of myself just talking about that. Oh, my God. (laughs)